What else we have going on today is we're, we're continuing in our series Endgame. And this is where we're looking at what God says about the end of the world. And so in past weeks, we've established how we can trust God's word, how we can trust his word in predictive prophecy, and how what he said has come to be. And, but there, there's yet to happen, and we've been focusing on that. Last week, we learned that uh, the rapture, which is the next prophetic event that, that should happen, it's a signless event. Nothing has to happen between now and then. That can happen at any time, any day, any moment. It could happen this morning. But if the rapture can happen at any time, and it's been that way for years and years and years, then it sort of begs the question, well, why then should we have to be ready? Why should we even look for signs? Because it's been so long and God hasn't done anything yet, so why, why do we keep doing that? My father was a master chief of the Navy, served through three wars, and, and he taught me this, and a lot of you know it. And so if you know it, just follow along with me. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning, sailor take warning. Right. That actually is something that Jesus said, and it goes right along with this topic. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, when it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to, inter- how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? So here you have Jesus scolding the Sadducees and the Pharisees, because he's saying, hey, you, you read the skies that you can tell what the weather's going to be like, but you haven't read the signs that God has given you. And Jesus was talking about his first coming in his ministry, and it goes on from there, and that's, that's what he was talking about. But then Jesus' ministry sort of shifts. Later, his focus Uh, shifts from the first coming to his second coming. And he says things like this that we've already talked about. Of that day and hour, no one knows. And that's this is talking about in relation to his second coming, that it can come at any time, no one knows, be ready. But then he gives a list of signs and says, you also must be ready. Clear, And we talked about how that can be. Clearly, Jesus wants us and expects us He believed in the signs of times, the signs of the times for his first and second coming, and he wants us to be tuned in to those same signs about him. Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews actually talks about why it's important for us to be meeting together. Why do church? Why we should be at church? Is that important? And he puts it in the context of, hey, as the days grow toward the end times. He says it this way in Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, that's church, 
as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, the day drawing near is the day of Christ's return. That, and that begins first phase, no signs with the rapture. And seven years later, second phase, his physical return to earth. We've already talked a lot about that and why we believe that in, uh, last week. And if it's impossible to see the day drawing near, then this verse makes no sense. They're saying we can see the day drawing near. Now, if there's a signless rapture, then there's a bunch of signs before Jesus physically comes back to earth. Are, the, are there things happening now that sets the stage for that? Are there things happening in our world now that we say, oh, this ties into that, or, or are they not? But to answer that question, we have to, we have to go in to that seven-year period called the tribulation time, seven years, yet future, and we have to look at that in a little more detail to know what's going to happen so we can look around our world today and see, do we see how that may happening or anything leading up to that happening? Does that make sense? Okay, we're in trouble. So let me, let me rephrase here. This is going to be like school today, all right? So you need to strap in, buckle up. We're going to go through a lot of detail, and we're going to tie it in to current events today to say, oh, yeah, I can see how this can happen now. We've never been able to see that before. Or that seems to be already happening now. So are you with me? Okay, that's better. All right, you're with me. All right. So that seven years of tribulation, well, the first thing that's going to happen before that time is called the rapture. No signs precede it. We covered it in detail last week. And, and many of the things that I'm going to go through now with the tribulation period, uh, as I do that, we're going to, it used to be that we would read those things and we would think, even when I was a teenager, we would read those things. I would read those things and say, I just don't see how that could possibly happen. And now I read those things and say, oh, a lot has changed since I was a teenager. And now it's obvious. So the next event I want to talk about, so we're going to talk about a list of events in conjunction with that seven-year period, and then what's happening in the world today that sort of makes that likely or seems like that's coming or not. So the next thing is the War of Gog and Magog. This war is a little confusing in Scripture. It's explained to us in Ezekiel 38, but there's also a reference like it at a later time but in Ezekiel 38, this is a war that happens, and this either happens right before the tribulation time, like in between the rapture and the beginning of that seven years, which is the signing of the peace treaty, or it happens right after that. So it happens right around the beginning of the seven-year period. It doesn't mark the beginning. Something else does that that we'll get to, but this is the war. Now, here's the deal. In Ezekiel 38... Those nations involved in that war with Israel are mentioned by name. And those ancient names uh, have been identified today. And here's a list of nations. Russia, Turkey, Iran, Libya, Sudan, and then several stand companies. You know, all the, the stands countries, several of the stands countries like Turkmenistan. 
And what happens is they attack Israel, but then they are defeated. And not only are they defeated, they start fighting amongst themselves, Scripture's telling us, at that defeat, and that happens. And so in Ezekiel's day, in the first century, we looked at that list of nations. Some of them are, are from Asia. Some of them are from, from the Middle East. Some of them are from North Africa. And we looked at that list of nations and we went, there is no common denominator here. This makes absolutely no sense. Why is Libya and Turkmenistan and Turkey, how are they uniting? We couldn't you know, see how that could possibly happen. Today, we see that very easily because in the news, and if you look for it, it's in the news all the time, we have Russia working with a coalition of Muslim nations, and every one of those nations besides Russia is a Muslim nation. And I'm going to remind you of something. There is no predominantly Muslim nation on earth today that does not persecute Christians. Christians are persecuted in every one of those nations Today, right now, as we speak. And so in the news, we see Putin, the leader of Russia, connecting with all these countries. And we're going to see that a lot more before I go through this. And then there is the peace treaty. The peace treaty is what Daniel specifically tells us inaugurates this seven-year period. At the signing of the peace treaty, the clock starts ticking for the seven years. But what do we need before we have this peace treaty? Well, one thing is we need this world leader that we call the Antichrist, but we don't know who he is yet, and we might not know who he is until he signs that peace treaty. But what are the other two things we need? Well, first of all, we need for there to be an Israel. We've talked about this a little bit before. Since the first century, there has not been an Israel. Not until 1948. Not until after World War II. And so Israel happens, and, and, and you think about it, Israel's in the news all the time, right? The Middle East peace, Israel, all this stuff. Israel is smaller than the state of New Jersey, and it's the epicenter of things that are happening in the world. And here's what Jeremiah says regarding this regathering of Israel. Jeremiah 33 says, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. So how did that happen? After World War II, and we remember what was happening during World War II, was the Holocaust, where millions of Jewish people were being killed and burned to death in ovens in, in uh, Germany, and in Germany's fear, sphere of influence, all that was happening. World War II then ended, and with that world war ending, then all of a sudden there was a lot of sympathy for the Jewish people. And so there was also a lot of sympathy that the Jewish people would have a land, and they wanted to go back to Palestine, although there was always Jewish people there, but they, they wanted to return there. And so, especially with England, England actually, actually adopted something called the Balfour Declaration that happened prior to this, where they were being sympathetic to Israel establishing, establishing a homeland in Palestine. But all that happened, and that set it up for then the Jewish people to return. Now, not everybody liked that. You know, there, it was a very controversial thing, and governments were afraid to help 
the Israeli people come back, Jewish people, to return to the land. All that stuff was happening. But in 1948, and by the way, there's a lot of disinformation out there because of the Palestinian issue. You know, people make it sound like, oh, it was a country, Palestine, and the Jewish people are taking it over. It's really not the way it happened. After, up until World War I, the Ottoman Empire controlled Israel and, and that whole part of the Middle East, and there was no separate country, Palestine. That didn't even happen. That didn't happen until after World War I. Then uh, Ottoman Empire crumbled, and part of that is because they lined themselves with, with, with the enemy. And, and then there was a Palestine nation, and the UN sort of had a part in that, and Britain controlled that. After World War II, Britain says, hey, we want to pull out and we want to leave a place within this land for the Jewish people. And so in 1948, they came up with the partition plan. Have any of you ever heard of that? The partition plan where the United Nations says, here's what we're doing. Britain's going to pull out of Palestine and then we're going to give kind of half the land to the Jewish people, where they're at primarily, and then we're going to give the other half of the land to the Arabic people, where they're at primarily, kind of where they live. And so that's what they, that's what they wanted to do. And the Jewish people said, okay, that sounds fair. And the Arab people said this, no way. No way, because we are going to kill you, and we are going to wipe you out, and we are going to drive you from all of this land. And so the Arab people rejected that partition plant. Well, then 1948 comes, Britain pulls out. That day, Israel announces themselves as a nation. The first world power, the first country to recognize them as a nation is President Truman representing the United States. Hours after they made that declaration, President Truman recognizes the state of Israel, and that launches them into a, a war of independence. So in 1948, although they were fighting in 47, here's what happened. Israel is invaded by Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. All these countries all around, e all around Israel attack Israel. These countries represented 45 million Arabs against only 64,000 Jews at the time in the area, 700 to 1. And they start battling for their independence. As a result of that first war of independence, Israel gains 23% more land than they would have had if, if the Arabs would have accepted the partition plan that the United Nations put forward. So all of a sudden, Israel's bigger than they would have been, but the Arabs wouldn't accept it. Then, just less than 10 years later, there's another war in 1956 called the Sinai War. Here's what happened then. Egypt, backed by Russia, moved a bunch of equipment, mainly Russian equipment, into the Sinai Peninsula. The Sinai Peninsula is that triangular piece of land in between Egypt and Israel. It's actually bigger than Israel itself. They moved all this military equipment into the Sinai Peninsula and... As, and to attack Israel, Israel saw that, but just before they launched the attack, Israel made a preemptive strike, and, and then they had a war, and Israel ends up winning, and they won the entire Sinai Peninsula, 
and the Suez Canal on the south side of the Sinai Peninsula. Israel took it all over. They won everything. They, they defeated them completely. Then, because of U.S. pressure, we basically pressured them to give the Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt and the Suez Canal back to Egypt, which Israel did, and then we sort of became Israel's protector. The next war, about 10 years after that, the United States was embroiled in Vietnam, and some of, some of our people here were in that war. We're, in, we're up to our ears in Vietnam and all the turmoil that's happening. In 1967, the enemies of Israel realized, hey, the United States has got their hands full, we'll make our move, and that was the Six-Day War. And who was that? That was Russia. Noticing Russia's not around the Middle East, but their name keeps popping up. That, that's, that's key. Russia backing Syria and Egypt, and Egypt also commanding troops from Jordan, invaded Israel. And the result of that war is that Israel again gained the entire Sinai Peninsula and then all these places you hear in the news all the time. And they gained the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and all of Jerusalem because they only had half of Jerusalem as a result of the 1967 war. Uh, I'm sorry, the 1948 war. And then all of Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights is an area just east of the Sea of Galilee that has high ground. That's the western border of Syria. And since 1948 until 1967, Syria just routinely shelled, bombed Israel from those heights. Israel took that away from Syria in that war. And so you hear about these places now where everybody's saying, give it back or give it to the Palestinians. But, you know, Israel's like, no, we, we want to give land for peace. But there's never peace when we give land back. There's just more war. And then in 1973, there was the Yom Kippur War, where Egypt and Syria launched a surprise attack on Israel, and the result of that was Israel won decisively. And so you see all what I call the modern history of Israel. You see all this happen, and it looks miraculous. I mean, in none of those wars, on paper, should Israel have won, but yet they've won all four of them, and so you're thinking, wow, it seems like God is up to something. And now the reason Israel's in the news all the time is they are surrounded, they're, they're isolated, surrounded by a sea of enemies that all want Israel destroyed. Not that just they stop or not that they stay to themselves. No, they want them destroyed. They will not exercise, they will not um, uh, recognize Israel's even right to exist as a country. Now, and, and here's what brings in the United States. So check this out. So since 1950, two years after their independence, Israel then, their center was Tel Aviv. They declared Jerusalem to be their capital, even though they only controlled half of Jerusalem and the Arabs controlled the other half. So 1950, they say, hey, Jerusalem is my capital. But because of pressure from all the Arabic and, and predominantly Muslim countries, no country would move their embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, in 1967, they got all of Jerusalem and the West Bank, but still, no country would move their embassy to, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, not one. In 1995, because this still hadn't happened, our country passed a resolution 
to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and move our embassy. But each president has been afraid to do that. So what's happened is every six months since 1995, the sitting president has signed a waiver to hold off construction and the move of our embassy for six months because that was allowed for in the law. So every six months like clockwork, every president we've had since 1995 signs this waiver, not yet, not yet, not yet. We don't move our embassy. Until a year and a half ago when our president said, we're recognizing Jerusalem as the capital and we are moving our embassy to, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And then just last year, we actually physically moved our ambassador to Jerusalem. We didn't have a building built yet. They're constructing the building now. But he moved into the consulate at Jerusalem. And so effectively, we have moved our embassy to Jerusalem. We are the only country in the world that has done that to this point. That's how it ties into the news today. Now, besides needing Israel. Okay, are you guys with me here? Okay, oh, you are with me. Wow, that's pretty encouraging. Okay, so what do we need for a peace treaty? We need an Israel. We have an Israel. But then we also need this 10-nation confederation that this world leader, we call the Antichrist, the Bible calls him, that this world leader comes from. We believe that would be from Europe because Daniel told us it was the revived Roman Empire in, in 10 parts. Well, today we know that we have this, but then people used to say, well, how are 10 nations going to be one nation? How do they come together? Well, today we know that there's this European Union where they've tried to become, although they're separate countries, a lot more like the United States in that they're bound together. So that started happening. Today, there are 28 nations in the European Union. There are 19 of the 28 nations are in the Eurozone, which means they all use a common currency called the Euro, and so they're more tightly economically bound together. So that's, you know, we can see that happening. Now, there's more countries. There's 28. There's only supposed to be 10. We get that, but we see that happening now. And that, by the way, has been in the news also. How many noticed that on Friday... The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom resigned, Theresa May. Anybody catch that in the news? She just resigned on Friday. Why did she resign? Because she could get no traction on something called Brexit. Brexit is Britain exiting the European Union, which the British people voted for, but hasn't happened. Theresa May was trying to honor that vote and kept trying to come up with a compromise because they actually have to negotiate their exit from the European Union, and the European Union saying, you know, money and this, that, and the other thing, and so they're having a hard time getting out. They tried like two or three times, didn't work. She lost confidence from her own people. She got a no-confidence vote, so she resigns. I think she ends up in June, and so you're going to see Trump go over, President Trump go over there and meet with her, although she's on the way out. That meeting was already set up. You know, so all this is happening right now, and what does that involve? That's all about Britain deciding we don't want to be in this European Union anymore. And so there you see the numbers, you know, by one, getting smaller. Okay, so that's happening. So we have the 10-nation European Union. And this European Union 
seems to be a very clear prelude to the coming of this world leader that we're talking about. The next thing that happens, so now we're in the tribulation time. The very next thing that happens is that somehow God seals 144,000 Jewish people to, to be his representatives, be his evangelists, be his preachers. And that's told for us in, in Revelation 7-4 where it says this, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Just a few days ago, I heard somebody talking and they were saying, well, we don't know that there, there you know, would be Jewish people and we don't know that this and we don't know that. That's what people used to say, but that's wrong. 144,000 Jewish people. And then the Bible gets even more specific saying 12,000 from each tribe. 12,000 times 12 tribes, 144,000. And then it, people used to say, well, how could that even happen? Because Jewish people don't know what tribe they're from anymore. All that's kind of been lost. But today we have all this resurgence of DNA analysis where just anybody can write in on the, on the Internet and find out exactly your history. That was also an issue. I'm getting on a rabbit trail here. When they have a restored temple that they need a priest from the Levitical the Aaron priesthood, that he would initiate all this, well, then how are you going to find that person if nobody knows? Well, DNA is how that's all going to happen. We can all find out about our history, but I'll move on. So that's the 144,000. And then there are two special witnesses who have a ministry of three and a half years, which is 1,260 days on the Jewish calendar, three and a half years. And here it says this in Revelation 11:3, And I will grant authority... To my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. And then these two witnesses, they minister for this first three and a half years of the tribulation, and then they're killed at the midpoint of the, uh, of the tribulation period, right in the middle of that, three and a half years in, they're killed. And they're killed in Jerusalem, and their bodies are laying in the streets of Jerusalem. And because of this, the, this world leader and, and ba essentially the world are celebrating that these two witnesses are dead because they caused quite a ruckus because God gave them some special abilities. So they're dead and the world's celebrating and they're exchanging gifts with one another just like Christmas. And then everybody, the whole world can see their bodies. Now you got to know, just 75 years ago, we're all going, well, I, I wasn't there, but you know, everybody's saying, how could that happen? How could everybody see their bodies laying in the streets of Jerusalem, the whole world? That would be people on the other side of the world. How would that possibly happen? Now we would expect that, right? With the internet, now we would expect that everybody can see that on their phone. And by the way, it's not just Western countries that have phones. You realize this. I've been to Africa. I've been to Asia. I've been to third world countries. People live in a hut in Africa, and they don't have a car and they don't have running water, and they don't, but they have a phone. It, it's amazing. In China, the common people, you know, they're, they're, they're walking around, but they all got, they're riding bicycles, but they have a phone. They go to McDonald's, which is hard to find a McDonald's in some places in China, but they'll go to McDonald's, and they'll use their phone to pay. But anyway, we'll get back to that. But anyway, that's, so people, everybody will be able to see it. Now, here's what happens. The whole world is celebrating these two dead guys laying in the streets of Jerusalem, for three and a half days. And then God says after three and a half days, God resurrects them in front of everybody. They come back to life 
And that freaks the world out. And then God they, has them ascend to heaven. Not in a blink and a flash like the rapture. They ascend to heaven and everybody sees, sees them because all the cameras are trained on them. They, the whole world watches this happen. And there's fear in the world ab about God. I mean, they're like, whoa, we should not have been celebrating that. And so they're all kind of rethinking everything when that happens. Did I read 11.3? I did? Okay, great. All right, I can move on. All right. So now we're in the midpoint of the revelation period, the midpoint of the tribulation period, all right, the seven years. And then here's what we know. We don't know how it got there, but at the midpoint in the tribulational period, there is a Jewish temple. The reason we, there's not one there now, because on the temple mount is a Muslim shrine, uh, the Dome of the Rock, and there's a mosque there, which, which is a big deal. And that would have to be gone for there to be a temple mount. So we don't know, because we don't know exactly when Gog and Magog happens, but it could be if Gog and Magog, that war against Israel, if it happened between the rapture and the signing of the peace treaty, it could be that that sets all that in place, and along with the peace treaty is some means for the Jewish people to rebuild their temple. And I say that might happen, the Gog and Magog war might happen before that, because then if the Muslim, all those coalition of Muslim countries have all just been defeated, they might not have enough power to keep that from happening, because they have a lot of power that they influence around the world now. Or it doesn't happen that way. Gog and Magog is after, and we don't really know. All we know is three and a half years in, when these two witnesses are killed, there is a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, the third temple. And then what happens is significant. That world leader then goes into the temple. He walks into the temple and he violates the temple because people, normal people just aren't allowed to walk through the temple. Goes into the innermost part of the temple, which we call the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest could go in one guy once a year kind of a deal, and he goes in there, he sits himself on the mercy seat, which is the Ark of the Covenant of God, and he declares himself God, thus he violates the temple. That happens exactly at the midpoint of the tribulation time. And so we're told that that's called the abomination that causes desolation. That's the way Daniel explained it. That's what Jesus said when he was referring to what Daniel said, that's what Jesus talked about. And then Paul also talked about this event when he wrote the church in Thessalonica. And we were looking at that last week. But in his second book to the church at Thessalonica, he's answering a question because somebody has told them, some false teachers have told them, that, hey, the day of the Lord or the tribulation time has already started. And he's saying, no, no, that's not right. And here's what he writes them in 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So that happens. When that happens, because of more and more Jewish people are becoming Christians, but even that would, would be offensive to Orthodox Jews, and also 
newly Christian Jews, that's offensive to everybody, and so they kind of take off and their persecution breaks out. And then that point inaugurates the second half of the seven-year tribulation, the second three and a half years, which is referred to as the greater tribulation or the great tribulation, meaning things go downhill from there. Coinciding with this is that people are forced to receive the mark of the beast or the mark of the false prophet. And the false prophet is a second world leader who becomes the right-hand man of the first world leader. And he somehow gets control of uh, the economy. And all of a sudden, we have to have this mark, which you've probably heard about. But let me read that in Revelation 13, beginning in verse 16. And he, talking about the false prophet, and he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. So you've heard about that 666. That's where this comes from. It's not the, the main world leader. It's the false prophet, the right-hand man world leader who comes up with this. Well, always in the past, we always looked around and said, how can this happen? I mean, every economy in the world has their own currency, except for Europe, and then, you know, all these things. But today, what's, what's in the news today? If you watch, now chipping is becoming increasingly popular. And chipping is where people have a microchip inserted into their hand, and then with that microchip, because it has a small frequency to it, it can unlock doors that you want unlocked. You can make purchases with the wave of the hand. And so that's just becoming a thing. There's actually a company, a Swedish company, uh, called Biohack that is producing these. And they've already installed 4,000 of these in people. This is just one company in Switzerland. And they cost about 180 bucks to get one of these and then... And we can see how this would solve a problem. We have increasingly moved to a cashless society, like I was telling you, even in China, where people don't have a very high standard of living. Everybody we saw, they don't use Chinese currency like we were using. They were using their phones to pay, like an Apple Pay, only didn't, Apple didn't get anything from that. But anyway, they do that. And we see this, and then people use credit cards. Younger generation, it's mainly credit cards. We've become a cashless society. But what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is you lose your credit card or you lose your ID or you misplace your phone or somebody steals your phone or they take your credit card. So how, how to solve that? Well, to put the chip permanently embedded into the person and to decrease the chances of that happening. And we're seeing that happen right now. And again, just, uh, just mention that one company that's doing it. So then, as this continues, this world leader basically becomes, he consolidates into a one-world government. With that, there's some opposition and persecution of Christians who have been converted, because there were no Christians at the very beginning, 
because of the rapture, but Christians who have been converted by the ministry of the 144,000 and the two and others after they become believers. You know, so Jewish Christians and most of the people becoming believers are, are Jewish, but also Gentile believers are being persecuted by this world leader. And we read about that in Revelation 13, verse 7. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. What's the outlook here? The world's not getting better. And the world will not get better until Jesus comes back. Now, if you want to know more about what it looks like exactly when Jesus comes back, that's what we'll be talking about next Sunday. That's the next thing on God's prophetic calendar. But the point that I want to land on with right now is that the world is broken. It has been broken because of sin. Our sin. And God allowed that Jesus would come in his first coming to make a way for our hearts to be clean. But Jesus is coming back and eventually he will make the whole world right again. And, and that is yet to happen but that's coming. And it, it seems to be right around the corner. It seems to be happening, you know, about any, it could happen any time. The world is broken. Creation is groaning. It's not supposed to be this way. It's this way because we have misused a good gift from God, our freedom to freely love him back. And we've messed everything up. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, even as we uh, contemplate the future, we, we thank you and keep thanking you, and we're always in thanksgiving to you because you have loved us and you have a way to correct a broken world, mainly our broken hearts. Lord, that your son would come and die for us, and God, we thank you for that greatest gift that we receive, not because we earn it, because none of us deserve it, that we receive just through faith, as a gift. And God, we thank you for that greatest gift. And God, now we realize that you are telling us these things about the future for a reason, so that we would know, so that we would be able to see the signs, that we'd be able to see the stage being set. We'd be able to identify that. Lord, and you wanted us to know because you wanted us to be ready, because you've given us a purpose, and you want us to be about your business your agenda. And God, as we see that the time is short, even with, the, with no guarantee on our own lives how long we would live, but also that, that things are going to change and you're going to come and pull your own out or that we have work to do. And Father, as we see the brokenness around us, we realize that we are incapable of fixing it, just, just our own hearts through you. Lord, help us to be faithful. And Lord, we're looking and we realize there's only one, there's only one who is worthy. In Christ's name, amen.